From the Cumberland Plateau and the University of the South, this is the Suwannee Review Podcast. My guest today on the Suwannee Review Podcast is Lisa Tadeo. Lisa is the author of the number one New York Times bestselling and number one UK bestselling book of nonfiction, Three Women. She is also a longtime journalist and has both a collection of short stories and a novel forthcoming, the timing of which we'll discuss. Lisa has been a contributor to the review since the beginning of my tenure. I consider her a friend and greatly admire her work on all levels. She's here with us in Suwannee. Lisa, welcome to the Suwannee Review Podcast. Thank you for having me. We're here in late October, and you're still on this very intense roller coaster ride, which has been the world tour of Three Women, which came out this summer. You've been on countless podcasts. You've done appearances all over the world. You've been reviewed everywhere. I always said when I first read this book in early January that it was going to be the the book that launched a thousand think pieces. I was wondering if you could first give something that maybe you don't feel like you get to do, which is your own description of the book, and then maybe talk about a question that you feel like you never were asked about the book, in spite of all the questions you've been asked. Okay. I would describe the book as, it's funny because it was marketed in sort of like, this is the consummate book about female desire in the United States. And I remember feeling very wary of that because one, it wasn't. (laughs) And two, I knew that it was going to, I knew that it was going to make people angry. I always saw it as the story of three specific people, not even necessarily women. Uh, I wanted to really write about the lives of uh, three. At one point it was 20, 15, 10. I wanted to write about the lives of a specific kind of small number of human beings and give their lives as much introspection and granular investigation as one would give a celebrity, a politician. And that was really my aim. And that was, I think, what it is. So that is my description of the book, that it's an examination of three women's lives, uh, specifically their desires, and how those desires affected them and the people around them and how they were, how those desires were born out of their pasts and their presence. And in terms of the second question, what have I not been asked? One of the things I haven't been asked, actually, is regarding the the young woman who has an affair with her high school English teacher when she's underage, allegedly. 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 There's the teacher's wife who testified for him. And I suppose what I've never been asked about that is... Or rather, the sort of the party line is that 
she's lying on the stand. She was a, she is a parole officer. How could she do that? Et cetera. For me, I've always thought that they have three children. I think at the time they only had two. Why would she, like the demonic part is her lying on the stand, allegedly. And for me, it's always like she has two children with this man. The idea she can send in a second her husband and the father of her children to jail for 40 years, or she can not. And I think that that's a really interesting question and it's an interesting thing to examine i don't think it's cut and dry i obviously think that lying on the stand allegedly is not moral or correct or the law or in keeping with the law of our land which we should be following but that said it it's a it's an interesting question that i haven't been asked about how i feel about that or how it looked from the town's perspective i can't imagine that when you're writing something that requires not just the highest level of empathy on the part of the writer, but then this non multi-perspectival attack by the reporter to get the information you need to tell the story. But also at a certain point, this wasn't just a notebook dump. I was wondering if you could talk about the process of arriving at the narrative approach you just felt like you had to take for this book. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Because I cannot imagine that you started three women certain from the jump that you were going to do this like super granular narrative approach that deployed many of the strategies of, of novel writing of prose fiction. I mean, there's a level of irony in it. So talk a little about that process when the normal forms of reporting just didn't suffice. When I told my friend in New York that I had, I was following around this woman in Indiana who was driving hours to meet this man for just a couple of minutes or one kiss. And this is Lena. Lena, yes, the woman, the housewife in Indiana, whose husband didn't want to kiss her on the mouth, who had been raped as a young woman and then not touched for over a decade by her husband. She wanted this passion so badly and was so obsessed with this man, not just the man, but with the sex she was having with finding her body after her all these years of not even knowing where or what it was. So I was telling my friend about her because I was so intrigued by her. She is actually the woman that I'm the most intrigued by in the book because she gave me the most one and because she was so self-aware and so just willing to spill. So I told my friend about her and my friend said that it was pathetic. She was pathetic. And I, my friend had done the same thing, only it was with a man in New York who was a financier who had a lot of money. So to her, it didn't seem pathetic. <laughs> and, you know, it wasn't a crane operator. It wasn't et cetera. So when she said pathetic, I understood what she meant. I, I got it. I understood that if I were not in the situation, if I were not with her, this woman all the time, that I might have thought the same thing. So what that was when I decided that I needed to get as deep as possible into her brain so that my friend in New York and every friend and person, as many people who would read the book that were in some way open, would see themselves in them by by seeing emotions. by And the way that I did that, I mean, there's the first part of just spending over two years with a human being. Eventually, you 
It's like a best friend, only in a sense, it was more, there was more that I could get from them than a best friend, because with a best friend, you were both talking to each other. Within this situation, they were talking to me like 98% of the time. And I was maybe talking 2% because I wasn't even asking questions. At some points, they were just going, spilling out. It was also asking questions from a million different perspectives. With Maggie in particular, it was like waiting for a text message from the teacher. How long did you wait? Did you put your phone face? There was one part that we took out of the book that her cousin had just passed away and she was in the car between her father and her brother coming back from the wake and she was very upset about her cousin. But at the same time, and I'm sure we can all relate to this, when you're in deep pain, but you also have like a crush or something exciting, the pain is alleviated. And she was in the middle of these two, she was upset, but then she was getting texts from this man that she had this giant crush on. And she would like be putting the phone down. She would, and I, we would just talk about the way that she would angle the phone so that she could both see it and so that her father wouldn't see it and the way that she felt in those moments. So there was a lot of just specificity. And then in terms of the main thing that I did, it seems very elementary to me and almost kind of embarrassing, but I would write a paragraph of what I wanted to talk about, of what I thought was important about a scene. And I would just fill it with TKs. Like (laughs) Maggie felt TK when she saw TK. When she walked into Aaron's house, he was wearing TK and she felt like he looked TK in comparison to the way he looked in school when she felt he was more TK. TK, the journalistic term to come. Yes. So I did that. And then I would ask her, I would literally read the sentence, not read it out loud to them necessarily, but I would go, okay, and what was he wearing? And I would fill in the TKs. And then after that, I would then sort of describe the scene I had just written and say, is that accurate? Because I didn't want just the TKs to be just things out in the world. And then after that, you know, I had a professional fact checker go through it with them. And then I had them read it before it was published or even, you know, when it was a very early proof. And So they were, you know, I made sure, and then they made changes based on things that were not. So I felt very comfortable in the accuracy of their emotions and how I had translated them. I've got to think, first of all, I love that description of a methodology because again, it sounds to me like you were asking yourself on a scene to scene basis, do I have the information necessary to write a particular scene, Mm -hmm. even on a step-by-step constructed level. Mm -hmm. I would also imagine that when you came up with this method, there must have been an oh shit moment, by which I mean, you have to acquire a tremendous amount of information Mm -hmm. in order to get that close to a person enough to feel like you're telling their story on a lived moment to lived moment basis. This is where three women gets very close to fiction writing. Was there that oh shit moment where oh, you yeah. thought I'm, I'm in this for a long time. Yeah. I mean, well, there were f- 20 people in the first draft and one of the reasons that most of them were cut, some of them didn't want to be it in it anymore in a certain way, or they wanted me to remove too many things. Cause I would go over it with them so there were a couple of, oh, shits, this person's leaving. Which is kind of like adding TKs in yeah, a weird way. Yeah, and I was just like, I need, you know, do I need to have more people? Because I was trying to have it be geographically diverse, racially diverse, sexual orientation 
diverse. So I lost a lot of the people I lost were making up those those things. And I was there were a lot of oh shits with that. But I could not keep things that were thin in order to satisfy some goal that I'd had when I started. Because I started saying my proposal was like, it's gonna be everybody. It's gonna be people with, you know, STDs who are like it was just there was a lot that I wanted to do and it gradually, <laughs> gradually got whittled down. So the next person after Sloan who wanted, who was going to be in was so much less in a word count level and mainly in a, just a content and how much they would let me in level. And even with Sloan, there was a lot that I wasn't getting and I had to wait for her to be comfortable. I had to wait for her to, sometimes she didn't respond to me for three weeks. And I was like, is she never going to respond to me again? So there were a lot of that. I didn't have that with Maggie or Lena at all. But with Sloan, I had that. And there was a lot of filler with her that I was doing like sort of her historical stuff that she was comfortable with talking about. And it was not, I couldn't get that level from her because it wasn't happening in real time. One of the things I wanted was stories happening in real time because plenty of people have Oh, when I was 16, I had this amazing affair with my, with my high school English teacher. But Maggie was, had just had a trial happen where she, it had been three days prior before I met her. So it was real time, what she had experienced, what she had just gone over, all the things, the notes she had to excavate. So with Sloan, I had a lot of stuff from the past because it was important. Her past made up her present in a lot of ways, but I had a lot more of it than the present. And I remember my editors, and I had a couple of oh shits with that because it was towards the end I lost other people. I was like, it, you know, it can't just be these two people, et cetera. And my editor said, you know, I think we got to cut bait with Sloan. I think we just have to deal with the fact that it's going to be smaller than the other two. So there were a lot of oh shit moments. There weren't nearly any with Lena and Maggie only because they answered every single question I asked with Maggie. Sometimes things were too difficult for her at first. So she would say, can you, I would say to her, I'm, I'll text you and say, can we talk about this today? Or is there a better time this month? So we would do that because things were just kind of, you know, she would have a bad day and she wouldn't want to talk about something that would kind of kick back all these, kick up all these emotions, but they never, Lena never didn't reply to me about anything. And I was with her almost every day. It was one of the, having seen three women, not in early form, but far ahead of its tsunami of attention. One of the things that was very frustrating for me about parts of its reception, in spite of its success, and really all the things you could possibly hope for in terms of a book, was the ignorance of the very procedural aspects you discussed, stated more simply. The frustration sometimes critics would have with three women as some kind of comment on women and desire in America, mm -hmm. whereas part of me would read some of those responses and just want to say, do you know how hard it is to just get this information yeah. from enough people <laughs> yeah. and that you were necessarily limited by that mm -hmm. and because of that this you know here we are in cancel culture and then in inclusive culture mm -hmm. which is so outraged by the fact that you didn't sort of get everyone in mm -hmm. yeah talk a little bit about talk <laughs> what i mean what's it like writing a book like this 
Tell us a little bit about the dark side of writing a book like this, which on a certain level for authors out there would seem like a dream come true, but it's, it's not, right? No. I mean, I think that lay people who aren't writers or reporters or whatever, they're not understanding stuff like that is makes sense, obviously. But the writers who, who said things about it in that way, like, why didn't you include XYZ? It's like, you wrote a memoir about yourself, and you were able to do XYZ. Go ahead and try to do it. If you can find people who will talk about the way that they felt when the fact that they globbed a Cadbury egg on top of a man's penis and then sucked it off and then had to use their children's baby wipes to clean it off before it was inserted inside of you. If you can find someone who will talk to you about that, even being a Catholic in Indiana, then cool. Let me know if you can get 50 people to do that. So yeah, so that was very frustrating to me because I spent a, nearly a decade of my life looking for people almost as much as I spent talking to the ones that were in there and the ones that did not make it in there. So that was really frustrating. Not frustrating like it made me angry. I was just like, I was confused at the sort of lack of understanding of people who should have understood that as people who reported and did the same thing that that I had done in different ways. And like, even just trying, you know, I've done celebrity profiles, even just trying to get celebrities to talk about stuff that is not even, you know, their relationships is hard to an extent. So people who have done that and seen how difficult it is, I think it's just strange that they would have that reaction. I also think that, you know, it's called three women. It's not called 715 women. So it's weird to me. It's not called American women. No, it's not called anything except for these. These are the stories of three people. And then the other thing that really, this thing probably made me the most frustrated was that people calling them victims. Why are they all victims? We are all victims. We are all heroes. People talk to you about sex or about love, desire, etc. when they're in the either the throes of passion or the depths of pain. They don't talk to you when they're not in those two places. And you don't want to listen when they're not in those two places. So, you know, it's like, why don't you write about a happy marriage? And I was like, you know, Sloan's is a happy marriage. It's aberrant. The aberrant nature of it is making you think that it's not happy. She's confused about it, but are we not confused about do we hate our husbands or our wives for not washing the dishes or talking to our children in the correct manner? We do. We have confusions about that. I didn't write about those because they weren't as interesting as Sloan's situation. They weren't as self-aware as Sloan's. And why do I want to talk about something that's rote and that everybody understands? Why not talk about something interesting that still talks about marriage and happy marriage? And in a way that's just different. So it's weird to me. They're not victims. I also find the thing that upset me the most was, I mean, Maggie's a victim in a myriad of ways. She's also not a victim in a myriad of other ways. And when it comes to Lena, though, that was the one that really upset me the most because I think in a way that Lena has the most agency because she is going after this wild passion. She is finding babysitters at the drop of a hat. She's driving hundreds of miles when she can't afford to. She's looking for a phone charger in the middle of nowhere because otherwise she's not going to be able to hear back from this man that she's supposed to meet. And she only has two hours before she has to get up back to pick up her kid from school. You can look at it 
like that as like, oh, she's so screwed up with this guy. She should just say, you know, I'm not doing this anymore. But she wants to do it. She's willing to fall on the sword of that passion. No one's forcing her to. This man could take her or leave her. She just can't take or leave her passion. She only wants to have it. And so that to me is agency. It's not victimhood. And that's so strange to me. So that to me, in some ways, the triumph of three women as a piece of narrative is getting so close to the various subjects that at its most effective, at its absolute best, it, it, it obliterates moral categories. It makes you feel their desire. And when you feel that desire and recognize that you've been there yourself, hopefully you come away from the experience less judgmental. Yeah. And in fact, that's been half of it, maybe six. I don't know what the percentage is, sure. but I, that's been a lot of the reception. And then the other part of it is the judgment, the very judgment that it's like I was trying to sort of speak against, which is so interesting to me that there would be judgment. Another thing that I think is super weird is the desire for, I mean, I think it would have been the exact opposite reaction if the desire for me as a writer to have made a statement about what this means. That is nuts to me. Because if I had made a statement about what it meant, which is one ridiculous, because what do I know about female desire? What does anyone know? I didn't even know about these three women in the sense that I just talked about what they said and I related to what they said, but I can't tie it up in a bow because we can't. Also, you know, for example, people who think that Maggie was forever ruined by this, she is forever scarred, but she's a social worker. She's doing well, even great. So that's so strange to me that people just put, it's like, these are the stories of their lives right now. So the idea that I would make a sort of moral judgment, which is the opposite of what I wanted to do, or just a this is what this means and this is what it means to the country. And this is what that's wild to me. And I believe that if I had made one of those statements that people would have said, who is she to make one of those statements? So it's just so interesting to me, the way that people react and the judgment that still comes through, not even about me and what I did, because that's immaterial in the sense of I'm, I'm putting my book out there. It should be judged. That is what you know, as a writer, you have to accept that. And I think it's judged in a way that is the wrong way to judge a book sometimes. But in terms of judging the women, it's so crazy to me. And what's even crazier is that we are talking about sisterhood in the wake and the, you know, not even the wake, but the presence of Me Too. And we're talking about it like, you know, like we need to all rise up as a gender. But then we have people in Indiana who don't know what Me Too is. I have a friend with a daughter who is 18 years old, who is, this has, we were talking the other day, has no, has never heard of Harvey Weinstein. So, and she's 18 in, in suburban New Jersey. So it's these people in big cities, people who are plugged in, who believe that Me Too is is what we're all here, we're all doing this thing together. And then Lena is a victim, and she is not somebody we should portray, which is the most despicable thing in the world to me, because if we leave the Lenas in the dust, we're going to keep electing the Trumps.
Our podcast is recorded in the William Ralston Listening Room, located inside DuPont Library at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. This room is equipped with state-of-the-art audio components and over 30,000 recordings. Classes, listening sessions, and opera screenings are hosted by student curators throughout the school year. To visit or find out more about the Ralston Room, visit their website at library.sewanee.edu backslash Ralston. Shifting the subject a little, here's something I don't feel like anyone's asked you mm-hmm. that I've been wanting to ask you yeah. for a while. Okay. You know what's interesting? In both pieces you wrote for the Swanee Review, Beautiful People and The Huntsman, trauma is the burning ember in both stories that never gets exposed. It is indicated for both Jane, our narrator. I don't think the the character is never named in The Huntsman. Mm-hmm. This trauma is, is in some ways driving both characters. In Three Women, there's an exploration of their various traumas. Trauma in your fiction is rendered with a lowercase t, but has capital letter effects you go directly at capital letter trauma in three women. What's this obsession with trauma in our (laughs) current culture? Why is everybody looking for their trauma? You know, I mean, for me, I've had a lot of trauma. So I think I'm, I'm naturally, and I think a lot of people have traumatized by trauma. I'm like traumatized by trauma at this point. Are you kidding? I don't, I don't live. I live in trauma. I am trauma. (laughs) My my therapist said to me a couple of months ago, who would you be without the fear? And I'm like, absolutely nobody. I would not exist. And that's so true. And my husband's like, who were you before you were like this? I'm like, I think I was cool. You know, (laughs) I don't really remember. So yeah, no, I mean, I, I live in a state of constant trauma. I've suffered a lot of it. And for people who have, I suffered a lot of it at a fairly young age, whereas a lot of my friends hadn't. So I'm naturally drawn to trauma. And I think in terms of the empathy in three women or the empathy in whatever is comes from having suffered trauma and from not wanting other people to feel alone in their trauma. So I think people feel safe in talking about their trauma with me. I also think we suffer so much trauma. I mean, in terms of people who are like, these women are XYZ, you know, raped, et cetera. The study just came out that it was like one in 16 women, their first sexual experience was not technically non-consensual, but it was something they didn't want inside. And it was something that made them feel bad. Mm-hmm. And so, and that's, that's the reality. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. And mainly I think it's biological. Like I always think about Woody Allen, I think it's Annie Hall where he says, this woman's like, I don't know. I just think that I've never had a good orgasm. And he's like, oh, wait, hold on a second. Not a good orgasm. Every orgasm I've had has been right on the money. <laughs> and I think that's so true for men. And I wrote this piece for the Sunday Times style section about bad orgasms. I think women have bad orgasms. And I think it's not because it's not the actual like, you know, three or 15 seconds or whatever. I think it's the the aftermath, which colors the thing that happened. But women often feel with orgasms and with sex that they really, I think it's harder for women to have sex that they really like. 
I've asked a lot of women, like, how many of the partners have you had, have you wanted to be with? And that's often a lot lower than the sort of, it's like, you know, two out of the 10 or 17 out of the 80. And that's something I think is really, is really interesting about trauma of sex and the way that women look back on their experiences. I think it's not so much the men and who they are in the world, but the effect that they have when they, they don't know what they're doing. And I always bring up that, um, this editor of, of one of, in one of the countries that I've been published in who said that until he read my book, he didn't realize how indifference could be so wounding. And I think that's something that men as a whole don't get. Like genuinely, the men that I speak to do not get that. I don't think it's the man. I don't think it's the man that Lena was obsessed with or Sloane's husband or the man that Sloane had the affair with or Maggie's teacher. I don't think that they're bad men. I mean, you can obviously argue that, you know, each of them are bad men, but especially the teacher, obviously, but they're not bad men. It's just the effect that they have. And that's something that I think a lot of people see and think, but it's not bad men. It's men who don't know what they're inflicting. I mean, I always think about literally my husband who I describe as long suffering (laughs) was when we first started dating, he was in Los Angeles and I was in New York and we were writing on Gchat to each other every day and text message, I guess, too. And one day we were like not exclusive yet. And I wrote, I was out with my friends. I was like drinking, you know, we're drinking orange wine. I felt really cool in the city and he was in LA and I texted him, hi. It was so cute. I looked at my high and I'm like, it's such a flirtatious, cute high. And he wrote back something like, you know, hey, what's going on? And I was like, oh, celebrating Caitlin's birthday and blah, blah, blah. And it was a fine exchange, right? And then the next day we talked on the phone and he was like, you know, I said something and we talked about something and he, it came up. He was like, oh, I know what the high means. And I, to this day, I'm like, what? does the high mean? And I guess what I've sort of, it's taken me many years to excavate, but what the high meant was, what are you doing? What's going on? I'm checking on you. One, he's in LA. So like, you know, you can tell me that you're doing anything and I won't be able to know that. So I didn't know what the high meant after he said that. I was confused, but it pissed me off a lot. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. Because even though like he was very, like he was attentive, he was really into me. I was like this bastard has made me feel bad. And I didn't like the way that I felt. And so a couple of days later, he texted me hi. Right. (laughs) And at first I was like, that's kind of cute. And then I was enraged (laughs) and the rage was just boiling. So I wrote back bye. (laughs) And I threw my phone across the floor. I took an Ambien and I went to sleep watching tree of life, which was like really not good for like nightmares. And I woke up in the morning to this like multiple texts what are you talking about blah blah blah, like all nuts and like you know whatever we resurrected it um and but then i made him pay 
by, you know, having this child, making him watch her while I go around the world <laughs> and like talk about my book. Literally, he is paying for saying I know what the high means. <laughs> so I guess that's a that's a sort of long-winded he d- I still I say to him, honestly, like once a month. I wrote an article about that because I was just like and I was like, I asked him to read it, and he's like, I don't need to read it, like another thing that you wrote, which is fine. But I was like, I need you to know how destructive that was to like a large part of my soul. It's like a, it was a deep wound. I still think about it. Not because I don't feel, I feel, I know how much he cares about me, even though he hates me, but I still think about the way that that made me feel. And that feeling is still a scar in me. And he doesn't get that. He has no recollection of the high conversation, even though I keep telling him about it. And then like a month later, I'm like, what about the high? He's like, what was that again? (laughs) So that's what I think man is, you know, from what I've seen. Man is, I know what the high means. And then he never tells you what it means. Quickly shifting over then to your fiction, The Huntsman, this, you know, I just think remarkable story you wrote for us. Maybe you could first tell our listeners what the story is about, and we'll go from there. It is about a young woman who is at a job that is rather, like, not interesting, and her boss is this older married man who it becomes obsessed with her, but because she has a lot of loneliness and trauma Mm -hmm. she allows uh the obsession to grow and then she allows him to sort of she allows him to take care of her in the ways in which she is not being taken care of in her own self i don't think it has much to do with the rest of the world um and it it's about the the self-shame that comes from that, that comes from allowing someone that is not attractive to you on that many levels, other than the sense of protector, to be in your life in a certain way, specifically um, a physical way. And not even physical. I think that the physical is sort of incidental. I think it's really like allowing someone to think that you may one day be with them. The story is about this, like you say, it is about a degradation. It's about letting yourself be taken in a direction because just there's a lot of mixed emotions in that. But one of the emotions that I that I wanted to explore was that this young woman was not just doing this to herself. She was also screwing with this man's brain. And it wasn't his pursuit of her alone she could have at some point said enough i don't like you like that she didn't have to say i never liked you like that but she could have said you know what i'm i'm done and she never does that and the story ends with her not doing that and how she's not blameless i thought it would be lovely if you could read from the opening of The Huntsman. The section I'm going to read from is the part where the young woman becomes not comfortable, but 
kind of allows something to happen. It's the first I always think about. One of the things I was exploring with my book with three women was at what point does an affair begin? You know, does it begin with a first kiss or does it begin when you're walking down a street and someone's taking a cab and you're like, oh, we're going in the same place. Let's just go. And the reason you're doing that is not to save money, but because you want to be in the same car as them. So that's that's kind of this moment for me. They walked outside. Her feet and her heels were cold. One of the anonymous midtown blocks, 48th or 53rd. Nobody famous had ever been down this one. It belonged to the leveled cigarette butt and the solitary heart attacks. In those early days, she didn't know how drunk he got, how quickly. He was nervous with her. He was a big man, but he drank big. Ales, then the glens, neat and warm. His tongue was ginger with trepidation. He lit her cigarette and accepted one from her. He paid for all her drinks and appetizers, and still she felt rich and benevolent when she offered him a smoke. You're the most amazing woman I have ever met. Really, you should know that. You are very small, and yet you are this force. Force, she said self-lovingly. Had she been a force before he believed her to be one? He leaned forward then. His starched dark jacket moved like great bird wings. Her cold feet swayed in her shoes. They felt like iron hooved into leather. Her throat was sour with smoke and cheap wine. She didn't know what happened next, if she moved away from him or what. She knew she didn't want his mouth on hers. Some part of her also thought it would be a circus thing to do. Something barren and disastrous. Though she wasn't as disgusted as another girl might be, she imagined no reasonable girls like her would allow it. Only girls you found on boardwalks, with tar up and down the mutilated heels of their silver shoes. Asbury Park girls. Anal sex girls. Those girls would let Max mouth on them. Perhaps she moved out of general distaste, but she didn't move away enough. And whatever motion she made, whatever confusion inside of her manifested itself in her effort, had something to do with the poor bastard falling down and bringing her with him, onto the cement with the gum trodden and chilled in place. His crepey heft just about smothered her. He got to his hands and knees. He was embarrassed, straddling her like this, contemplating how to stand without effort. It did nothing for her if he felt like a pig. So she smiled. She was still holding her cigarette, divinely. She took a quick drag and laughed, and this was the permission that he needed to kiss her on the mouth. Thank you. You'd said earlier that you learned how to write from reading. You've also said to me repeatedly, while you've been on tour, not ungratefully, I just wish I could write short stories right now. <laughs> It'll be the last question, but I think it's a great way to end for our listeners because, you know, we, one of the things we say in the review sometimes when we reject things is this person hasn't done their reading. They're telling a story in some ways that isn't newly minted because they're not actually aware of the tradition through which this particular story has already come. There are lots of stories about affairs mm-hmm. people have with asymmetric aged people mm-hmm. but yours doesn't suffer from that who for you are your are your short fiction gods and why and then we'll end there 
James Salter, Alice Monroe, who I, and William Trevor, who I, and Tessa Hadley, who I think are very similar themselves, but have nothing to do with me. Absolutely. Very different in their approach. At all. But, but they are gods in terms of, uh, I feel cozy when I read them and I do not feel cozy when I read my stuff or when I imagine somebody else reading my stuff, when other people tell me that my stuff gives them nightmares, I, I know that I read William Trevor and Tessa Hadley and Alice Monroe because they don't give me nightmares. But when I write the things that I write, they make me feel safe in the same way that reading those people makes me feel safe. So like expunging stuff. So in that way, they, Joy Williams, who I think we've talked about her often, I think is an absolute, you said something that I haven't stopped thinking about, which is it's as though she has um, been to the other side and has come back and written about it, which is, I think, the most amazing thing anyone has ever said about anyone, but specifically Joy Williams. And I mean, those, I bring William Trevor almost everywhere because he makes me feel cozy. I love Barry Hanna who is kind of insane, but the insanity of a Barry Hannah is what makes you feel like you can break rules. Like that guy has broken every rule known to man in terms of writing at all. He writes about, about himself, you know, but he's such an interesting character, but he writes about himself in like, like the way Joy Williams writes about the other side. He writes about himself as though he's like this God. And you also kind of believe that he is this like weird Southern God. So him, and I don't know, I could, I could go on forever, but those are the ones that immediately pop into my head. So maybe you could end by giving, if you ran into Lisa Tadeo on the street, <laughs> Right after her husband had pinged her and said, hi, <laughs> what story would you tell someone to read? Of Alice Monroe? Sure. Of Alice Monroe, I don't. I don't, I don't think Alice Monroe helps with that particular kind of pain. Um, I think that, I'm trying to think, I, I think that first of all, it needs, oh, Elena Ferrante. And she's not, I mean, we're not talking short stories, but her novels that are very slim are basically short stories. Oh, two, I'm sorry. So Elena Ferrante, because I think nobody talks about that feeling better. And I think it takes someone like her because she is both a woman and a Italian woman, which I think is very... A European woman period has, they're more in touch, I think, in general with those feelings. I think American women from, because I've talked to many of them and I've also talked to many Italian women. And because I'm, you know, from Italy for the most part, I just find that in general. So I would, I would say someone not from this country necessarily to, to soothe, to ha be a bomb. Maybe that's, you know, sort of geographically. Um, uncool, but that's that's my that's what I would recommend. So Elena Ferrante, Grace Paley, who I think is also a bomb in the most amazing way. I don't think she speaks to that kind of a thing, but it's more like she's like she's going to wrap you up in her arms and take care of you. And the f and two more, Natalia Ginsburg, again, not a short story, but just like, hey, I've I've suffered more than you, <laughs> and it's okay, and it's going to be okay. And lastly, Lucia Berlin. Awesome. Yeah. Lisa, thank you so much for being on the Swanee Review Podcast. Thank you for having me, my idol, Adam Roth. <laughs> it's truly.
Thank you for listening to the Suwannee Review Podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Suwannee Review, America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly, is by purchasing a print and online subscription at www.thesuwanneereview.com. To discover what's happening at the Review, visit our website or follow us on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages at the Suwannee Review. Until next time, this is the Suwannee Review. New since 1892.